All right, I'd like you to use your imaginations for a minute. Put yourself in this spot. <clears throat> You're a young guy, a young pastor, and you've been traveling with, you've been planting churches with, and you've been mentored by a spiritual giant. And going along with him, you've seen a whole bunch of house churches get started. Churches have been getting planted. Things have been going great. And then your spiritual mentor leaves and goes somewhere else. And he leaves you behind. And this place that he leaves you is an island. Makes it harder to get away. One of their own describes the people on that island. He says they're always liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. Great church. Besides that, it's filled with rebellious people, rebellious men. And then just to add insult to injury, they've been, insul- they've been uh, a number of false teachers have kind of sneaked into these churches. And you're the young guy left behind by the spiritual giant. So it looks like it's time to call for help. So you send a letter or an envoy to your spiritual mentor and you say, this is a mess. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do this? You help plan all these churches. They look at you as a spiritual giant and I'm just me, a young guy you left behind. And finally you get a letter. And in the letter, the the first thing you read is, son, I left you behind to put everything in order. You go, great. Great. Now what? How many of you want to leave the ministry already? (laughs) The good news is, the letter didn't end there. The letter went on to explain exactly what I needed to do or that young pastor needed to do to set things in order, how he needed to implement leadership, how he gave practical advice on how to teach and train in godly living, how to, how to go about getting rid of the false teachers. And not only that, knowing all my insecurities as that young preacher, the spiritual son of this spiritual icon, He does all he can do to give me authority and credibility with all the people that are under me. Well, this is a true story, and it's a story about the young man named Titus and the island of Crete. And we're going to be looking at this young guy, and we're going to be doing a probably a series of messages on the book of Titus. Today's message is simply living what we believe. Or I could have said living what we say we believe. Because the problem with these people, well, there was many problems, but just kind of narrowing it down to a couple things. One is they were believers, but they were not living out what they say they believe. And two... Teachers amongst them were teaching false doctrine, false teaching. And this is something that Titus was supposed to deal with in the island of Crete, but it's not something that's become extinct in churches, in churches just about anywhere. 
The same two things are often present. False teaching, one way or the other, or and people that are living a lifestyle that doesn't represent what we say we believe. And one of the things as we get into this further, we'll discover, and one of the things I really appreciate about Paul's letter, you know, Paul sometimes can be really blunt. Anybody notice that? But I read this whole letter, and it's only three short chapters. But I read it, and he's giving all these instructions to Titus about these people that are in the church, and he never really once rails against these people. What he does instead is he gives, Paul gives Titus instructions telling him, here's what you need to do to help them become what they say they believe. He doesn't rail on them. He doesn't stand there and call them names. He seems like he was a little bit like Jesus. He just, he pointed at the religious leaders and the false teachers and let them have it. But those that were living in a way that they, that was different than what they believed, Paul understood they needed help. They needed instruction. They had needs to get them past that. So he doesn't rail against them, and I really appreciate that when I look at um, my own life, things that I do that don't represent always what I say I believe. And we are all very susceptible to that, especially, you know, think about this island of Crete, that guy that said they're always liars, they're lazy gluttons, they're, they're, just, they're worthless, immoral people, was one of their own. And he had written that 650 B.C. So they've been rotten people for a long time. But they were a bit changed by the power of God. So I'm going to give a little background today about uh, the situation and we'll make a little bit of application today and then we're going to continue on. And I encourage you to read the book of Titus many, many times. It's just a short little three-chapter book. Crete, first of all. It's a small island. You may remember it if you've read some of Paul's missionary journeys. It's in the, kind of between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It's not a very big island. It was an island that's somewhere around 140, 150 miles long and somewhere around 35, 40 miles wide at its widest place. Not a very big island, but it was known for having many, many, many little cities because it's kind of a mountainous island. And in all of these little cities, when Paul was there, and actually some of them may have been established even earlier, because if we read about the day of Pentecost, there were believers from Crete in Jerusalem for the holy days. So some of them may have even came back and started something before Paul went there with Titus. But these churches had been established, so they, they were meeting together. It appears from everything we read in Paul's letter that they were, most of them were believers, but they were not living in a way that demonstrated their beliefs. Um, morally lax, very immoral people. The Roman Empire was going strong at this time, the immorality of the Roman Empire. Uh, but it's amazing, even in the midst of all of that, and I, I guess this is something we need to note too, because it's easy in our culture, um, well, it's easy for me anyway, to sometimes look around and say, ah, this is so bad, nothing's going to change the situation. Nothing's going to change our nation. Nothing's going to change southwest Minnesota. Nothing's going to change our little communities. 
Well, as bad as this place was and as bad as the people were, the gospel was preached and people came to the Lord. The power of God, the power of God's grace worked. Then there's the but. But the people were not living in a way that demonstrated what they believed. So they, but they were saved. And besides the immoral culture that they lived in, there was the false teachers. So you have a situation like this, and one of the questions that could easily come up is, well, we're living this way, we've lived this way for a long time, who gets to tell us or who has the rights to tell us what's right or wrong? You ever heard something like, who are you to tell me how I should live my life? Same scenario. Who are you? Especially here's Titus. So we have Paul writing a letter to Titus. And Paul, most of us are probably familiar with this, but I want to just back it up for a moment and give Paul, um, some, give us some pictures of Paul, why he has the credibility, why he has the authority to tell these people how they should live. Just a few scriptures. Um, if you're familiar with the story in Acts chapter 9, that's where Paul becomes Paul after he's been Saul. Saul, who was persecuting Christians like crazy, beating them, imprisoning them, even having them killed. And on the road to Damascus, we maybe know the Bible story. God spoke to him, knocked him to the ground. His eyes became covered with something like scales, and he was blind. And Paul calls him Lord. He realizes what he has done. And he is led blind into the city, and God speaks to a man named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, there's this guy, Saul. And right away, of course, Ananias says, forget it, God. I'm not going to listen anymore. I've heard of this man. I don't want to go near this guy. And he says, go to him. And in verse 12, I believe it's verse 12, verse 15, it said, the Lord says to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. This is my chosen man. Chosen by God. That's what you call authority. That's what you call a calling. In Acts chapter 13, it refers to a time when the the group is gathered together in the city of Antioch, and there's a number of teachers and prophets gathered together. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit speaks. And the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Paul. Saul, same person. Saul, his Jewish name. Paul, his Gentile name. He's called to be a minister primarily to the Gentile nations. And he is called and set apart. The Holy Spirit's calling. They gathered together. They prayed over him, laid hands on him, and he went out as one sent from the church, giving him authority, giving him credibility. Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and 16 It says this, and this is Paul speaking himself when he wrote to the Romans. He says, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Reaffirming once again, it's a calling by God, grace given to him by God, called to this priestly ministry to spread the gospel. 
his authority and his credibility. If you were going to, uh, to question or confront the authority of the Apostle Paul, you would have to decide God didn't really mean any of that. So he had an authority. He had a track record. He had been persecuted. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned. His credibility had stood the test of all the persecution. And he is writing this letter to Titus. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, when we get there, it's going to say, a bondservant of God, Paul, a bondservant of God, a slave to God, a voluntary slave to God. We are all called to be bondservants of God, voluntarily submitting ourselves to his headship, his lordship. And that's how he calls himself. I'm a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he sets in this letter, because he knew full well this letter was not going to be seen only by Titus, it was going to be seen by a whole lot of house churches as he took it from place to place to set things in order. So then now he starts to establish the credibility of Titus. Most of us probably don't know a whole lot about Titus. Actually, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Titus. We see him mentioned in Corinthians, we see him mentioned in Galatians, and then there's this letter written to him. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 23, it says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker. Now those don't sound like the most impressive credentials, but remember who is declaring it. The Apostle Paul himself, called by God, set apart by God and the Holy Spirit, he is saying, this guy, Titus, he's my partner. He is my fellow worker. He is a co-laborer. It's like saying, it's just like having me there. That's who he is. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 18, and he says, I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? I am sending you a guy. He's my fellow worker, my co-worker. He's my partner. As a matter of fact, you've seen him. He, does, he lived his life like I lived my life. We did it the same way, building authority and credibility in his recommendation of Titus. 2 Corinthians 2.13, Paul is saying, as he's writing to the Corinthian church, he even says, he goes this far and says, I had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. He was so close to Titus. He calls him his brother. He calls him his true son. And it, it was such a relationship when he wasn't there, it was hard for Paul because he couldn't find him at that particular moment. And then in Galatians 2, this is sometimes, sometime later, it starts out, Paul is writing, he says, 14 years later I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. This is when Paul is going to Jerusalem to talk to the Jerusalem church to make sure they're on the same page as he's ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And you need to realize he's dealing with the Jewish leaders, even though most of them were apostles, disciples of Jesus. There was this Jewish tension between the the, the new covenant and the old covenant thing. They were always trying to bring that back into play some way. And here he is out with the Gentiles. And then he goes on and says... Um, I took Titus along also. And then we learn something about Titus in the last verse there, verse 3. Not even Titus, 
who was with me was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. So Titus is Greek. But in spite of that, he's Paul's partner. He's his co-worker. He's a brother in the Lord. He's my trusted son. We worked the same. We did the same. We've been side by side. And you even saw it when I was here with him. Building authority, building credibility. Titus has got this call on his life now. He says, Titus, I left you behind to set everything in order. Or we could say it like this. Titus, I left you behind. These people are a mess and you've got to fix it. And Titus, if he's human at all, is going, man, oh man, oh man. Why would they listen to me? Who am I? Boy, wouldn't you feel good about who you were in the natural even with the recommendation that the Apostle Paul is just given? So this is a little background on Paul, a little background on Titus. And Paul's endorsement of Titus in Titus chapter 1, when we get there, in verse 4 it says, Titus, my true child, to a common faith, to set things in order. A lot of theologians believe that Titus may have actually been not only discipled by uh, Paul, but Paul may have actually led him to Christ. He talks about Timothy and Titus a lot as his children in the Lord. Titus, uh, Timothy, we know, was saved before he came in touch with Paul, but we see no indication of that in Scripture with Titus. So he very well could have been led to Christ by Paul, his mentor. If I was in the classroom, I'd say, any questions? The book of Titus has an underlying theme throughout it that needs to be clearly understood, and it is clearly mentioned The words good deeds are mentioned seven times in three chapters. I think each chapter is about 15 verses. So about one out of every six and a half or seven verses, you read the words good deeds. But here's the underlying theme, the underlying question, the heart of the book of Titus. If salvation is completely by grace, through faith, and not by works, then why should we do good works? Does it even matter? Now, I don't hardly ever do this, but I want you to repeat this after me, okay? Salvation is by grace. Through faith. Not by works. Anybody confused by that? Good. Because we're going to be talking about do good works matter? And the answer is absolutely, positively. They are a critical aspect of a Christian life. But they will not save anybody. So I don't want that confusion. There is no way. You know what? I I messed up. I didn't do a lot of good things. I I did a lot of bad things lately. I I wonder if I'm still saved. Am I 88% saved? Am I 65%? No. Once you're saved... You are saved. Good works will never save anybody. Okay. Say that too. Good works will never save anybody. I got that. Okay, good. So I won't keep reminding you of that, maybe. But it's, we've got to get that. We can feel so much condemnation. 
we can feel so much guilt, so much shame, if we start to let that truth disappear and the lie creep in that somehow or other my good works or my behavior is connected to my salvation. It's not in the way that we often think. It is in the fact that if we're truly saved, good works will follow because of the inner work of a Holy Spirit living in us. Never the other way around. So, good works matter. They don't earn salvation, but, but, they express the life change that occurs when a believer experiences the transformational power of grace. Grace. Grace isn't just, you know, God giving us something we don't deserve. It is that. But it has a transformational power within us. If we have the Holy Spirit living in us, the grace of God lives in us, dwells in us. And when it expresses itself through us, it will bring about a transformation that leads to a changed life that will be good works that will tell people, wow, they've changed. God has done something in their life. It's important. Crete, in Crete, on this island nation at the time of Titus, grace was being attacked from two directions. And I I believe with all my heart, the attack is still taking place in the church today from the same two directions. The first direction it was being attacked from in Crete was the culture. The culture around them. It was an anything-goes culture. Immorality, sexual immorality, lying, cheating. It doesn't matter. You're married, doesn't matter. How many wives you have? We'll talk about that eventually. What a, what a one-woman man is. Most of the time back there in Rome, it was a th- you were a three-woman man. How many of you men want like that? Can't handle one. What are we talking about? But we're looking at these people in Crete, and because of the culture, they had this mindset. Well, if grace is really free, I'm saved, I'm a believer, I can do anything I want. We call that license. We take liberty and license that is not ours to take. That is not how grace functions. It's not what grace is. It does matter. We're not called to sleep around, to lie, to cheat, to get drunk, treat people any way we want, ignore the needs of other people. That is not part of grace. Grace is that transformational power within us that helps us to change, helps us to have a renewed mind by the word of God, brings about these changes in our life. So one side it's being attacked by that culture, and on the other side it's being attacked by false teachers. It doesn't tell us explicitly who they all are, but it does mention, once again, those Judaizers, those Jewish religious leaders. And what they were doing is what we would call getting legalistic. License over here, do whatever you want. Salvation's free. It doesn't matter what you do. Go out and have fun. Over here, legalism. Oh, no, 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 no. If you don't get circumcised, you aren't really in the, in the family. 
you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to do all these things, you got to follow all these rules, you got to do it the right way, the name your denomination way, or you're not really saved. Same two attacks on the grace of God. Crete was dealing with it, here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, still dealing with the same two things. And a lot of times, I believe this grace is under attack and it's effective because of a misunderstanding of the gospel. Misunderstanding of the gospel. And that misunderstanding of the gospel can be simply because of ignorance, because nobody's explained it to us. Nobody's taught us. Nobody's told us. Um, How are we expected to know and understand what we've never been taught or told? The Holy Spirit in us is a teacher. He can show us and lead things. But... If we've not been taught or told, ignorance could cause us to misunderstand the gospel. Another thing that could cause us to misunderstand the gospel is flat-out rebellious spirit and pride. I'm going to do whatever I want. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And the third thing is false teaching. False teachers can come in, and we see them today, um, teaching one side or the other grace to the extreme of license or we bring in this legalism and start adding to the grace of God start adding to salvation by grace through faith plus we better do a few things right and we see both of those so it can be a misunderstanding of not knowing because of ignorance it can be just a rebellious spirit at work or it can truly be false teachers that have entered in and taught bad doctrine we need to always remember that the Bible clearly clearly, clearly, clearly teaches it's not our behavior that earns God's grace. It's actually the opposite. God's grace is what changes our behavior. That makes sense? Our behavior doesn't earn God's grace. It's freely given. It's freely given. We can mess up We can ignore it. We can do our own thing. But it's still free. And it's the grace actively working in us that brings about the change. It's an inward change that takes place. I know you probably know these scriptures, but I'm going to put them up there again. I think I put them up there anyway. Philippians 2.13. We spoke about this a few weeks back. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. It's God working in me that gives me the desire. It's his grace that gives me the desire to live a godly life. And it's his grace that allows me to have the power to live that life. Clearly, not behaviors dictating anything. Ephesians 2.8. We've already quoted this pretty much. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not of any good works. It's a gift of God. Clear as can be. A little bit later, in a week or two, we'll be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. I read this this morning for communion. You can spend a lot of time studying these few verses. They are jam-packed with amazingly sound doctrine that will change your life when we understand it. 
But when the kindness of the, and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, out of his kindness, out of his love for us, God sent his son, Jesus. He saved us, not because of righteous things. In other words, not because of good works that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the blood of Jesus washing away sin. We've been born again. And renewal by the Holy Spirit, the renewing of our mind by the Holy Spirit through the washing of the word of God. Whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, justified, in other words, we Our sin's been washed away. The price has been paid. There's no debt owed anymore. The justice of God is completely met. All how? By his grace. That we might become heirs. That we are heirs. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ as children of God. Having the hope of eternal life. And sometimes when we read that, we think, well, I hope I go to heaven. That's not what that means. I could put one word in there to give you an accurate meaning that we have the certain hope of eternal life. A true believer has certain hope. If we're truly saved, you are going to heaven. If anybody makes the mistake of asking you sometime if you're going to heaven, make sure you can tell them in a complete answer. And they may discover that they need to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then it goes on and says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Notice what he stressed before he closed that statement with, you know what? Do good. Do good. It's profitable for everyone for you to do good. But that only came after he clearly, clearly reminded them that the work of salvation was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, let's actually go to Titus chapter 1. We're not going to go very far in Titus chapter 1. Matter of fact, we'll probably only go to verse 1. But I'm going to read uh, the first three verses or so. And I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I believe what he's telling us in this next sentence is his purpose statement, if you would, why he's writing this letter. He says this, I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth, and that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now at just the right time, he's revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. I just want to focus for a couple minutes on what I believe is his purpose statement. I have been sent to proclaim faith. I'm present to proclaim faith, and I'm to teach them truth. And with the truth comes the ability to live godly lives. His purpose statement. Paul, this is Paul's writing this letter to Titus, and he says, "This is it. This is this is what we want to do. 
They need to have faith. We accept the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's through grace, by faith. We're going to talk about the faith, he says. We've we got to talk about faith. And when we do this, we had to talk about the truth. We, we need to teach. We need to teach them. We need to help them understand. Beyond, once they're saved, now, what does that mean? What's it look like? And he says, that teaching of truth will allow them to live godly lives. So we see a real simple pattern, if you would, for growth in a Christian life, which applies, I believe, today every bit as much as it ever has. Faith, truth, or knowledge, and godliness. So it doesn't happen all at once. And that's why I wanted to stress that the way Paul wrote this letter, I I just love that he did not rip them apart because of what they were doing. Because you and I are all doing things that really don't represent the kind of life that we probably should be doing to represent godliness to the world around us. It is so easy to get pulled in to the culture, and our flesh can be extremely weak sometimes. But there is this grace available to all of us, this inward change. But it takes faith to get saved. It takes truth, knowledge, understanding, and then godliness can come. The word of God by the Holy Spirit will renew our mind. And all of that capacity is in us already if you've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We don't have to live that way anymore. But we do not have to live in condemnation when we mess up. Because you'll mess up. You will mess up. No matter how self-righteous you might think you are, you will mess up. I will mess up. Probably before I get home. But we don't need to be condemned by that. My salvation is not at risk. It's not at risk at all. So the Christian life begins with the opening of our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace, to receive the truth of the gospel. And it transforms us that our lives begin to change and demonstrate to the world around us godliness. So as we go through Paul's letter to Titus, we're going to see more and more that good works matter. That's why I stressed that salvation is by grace, by faith, not by works. But good works do matter. The Cretans, anybody in here, now maybe it's an old age thing. Anybody in here remember being called a Cretan or calling somebody else a Cretan? Don't be such a Cretan. Come on. Anybody, a few of us? I guess we're all over about 13. You know, when they called you a Cretan, they weren't complimenting you, were they? Quit being a Cretan. Because it comes from the Cretan people on the island of Crete. But we know that the Cretans, just like us, to achieve salvation, was by faith, completely. And we are called then to display our salvation to the world by our good works. This is kind of, this could bother you a little (laughs) But the way you and I live demonstrates to the world what we truly believe. You believe that? The way we live our lives demonstrates to the world what I truly believe, not what I just say I believe. 
we simply say it in our culture, you know what? Actions speak louder than words. And they do in the Christian lifestyle too. We want to live our lives in accordance with what we believe. And it's possible by grace because of the transforming power of that grace in our lives. And it causes, the, 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 it causes Jesus to be demonstrated to the world. So, closing. At the church in Crete, many of the people were living in ways that did not reflect what they said they believed. The gospel itself was being discredited because of the way they were living their lives. And false teachers were distorting the truth in the church. And Paul says, Timothy, fix it. And he does. I said Titus, Timothy. I did that the other day. I did it in class. Have I said that many times or just once? I made it through because I knew I'd do that. Titus, fix it. If you need help, call Timothy. (laughs) The next section in here that I want, I hope you read. I read ahead. But I want you to read it, not skip over it. Because most of the time when we read this next part, in verses 6 to the end of the chapter, we just take that part of Scripture and we say, that's for Bob and Darren and Alan and Brian and Ryan, the elders. It's not. Anybody here not a leader in any way, shape, or form somewhere? We're all leaders. Somewhere we are all leaders. And the first thing you do, what do they do? You know what? If, you got, if I'm the football coach of the Minnesota Vikings, it's a curse of God. No. <laughs> and, I lose, and I lose every game three years in a row. What do the owners do? Fire all the players. Never. Leadership's got to go. Paul is telling Titus, you need some leaders. And for each one of us, we can learn a lot about being leaders in our families, in our marriages, in the workplace, wherever we are. Because as as Paul says in the study we're doing in academy class, Chip Ingram says this over and over. He says, to someone, to someone, you are the best Christian they know. You are the best Christian they know. To someone. So I would encourage you, read that leadership thing. And see how it applies to us, to you and to me, as potential leaders. Because what Titus is doing, he says, these are the kind of people that we want to be leading so that they can demonstrate to others what it looks like to live godly lives. That's your assignment for next week. And if you've got time, go ahead and become one of them. <laughs> Just kidding. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do pray and thank you, God, that there was not a thing I could do about my salvation, but you rescued me. That you sent Jesus for each one of us to die on a cross and pay a price that we could never pay. There was nothing we could do that would have been good enough. Nothing. And I thank you, Lord, that you saved us by grace. And even grace allowed us the faith to receive. But Lord, I acknowledge that we want to be the ambassadors you've called us to be. We want to demonstrate Christ to the world. We want to be the bride of Christ. 
without spot, without blemish. And it can only happen by more grace. So Lord, I pray that you would protect each one of us, help us to control our thoughts, our minds, where the enemy would try to come and bring guilt or shame or condemnation, that we would stand on the truth of your word, that we are children of God, that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And you would give us ears to hear your Holy Spirit's voice as he speaks to us and continues that process process of transforming us into the image of your Son. I pray as we go today, we would be always alert for opportunities to share the good news of the certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.